And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was about balancing perception. And you talk about it in your first book and you talk a little bit about it in your second book. I was listening to your first book this morning, but the balancing of perception, because I'm a big believer in, and I coach my own clients on this, right? How people see us. You talk a lot about this, how people see you, right? You have to listen to some of that. And and here's what I mean with that. Sometimes people see us in ways, our greatness that we don't see. And getting feedback from others on our greatness helps us build confidence. And so I've always preached that if you if you feel like you don't have the confidence, go find out what other people see as your, I think you call your superpowers. Like what are those superpowers? On the flip side, you've got haters who have a whole different lens and see you completely differently. And sometimes we struggle with both pairs of lens. And do you really see me that great? Do you really see me that poorly. And then at the end of the day, I just really have to own how I see myself. I would love your your perspective on like, how do we balance all of that? There's ebb and flows to everything, right? So I love the idea of putting on the rose colored glasses that somebody else sees me through. And here's a good example of that is in 2020, a professor from Harvard reached out to me on a DM on social media and asked me if I would be interested in teach as a guest professor for his class in sales and sales leadership. And I was shocked because I couldn't get into Harvard. I didn't have the grades or the SATs to get into Harvard. And I didn't understand why they'd want to have me teach their students. So basically I was not putting myself on a level playing field. I was putting myself beneath others because of a title or a name like Harvard which is wrong, right? Because as leaders, we want to show our children and the world that we're all equal. It doesn't matter where you go to school, what color you are, what what background you have. That's all irrelevant. We're all equal. And the more I remind myself of that, the more I try to put everyone on that same level playing field, which was the catalyst to get me on the phone with that man. And once I was on the phone with him, he immediately said, listen, the reason why I'm interested in you is I've been out of the business world for 15 years. I'm a white man in his 60s. You're, you have this unique experience. You're a single parent. You, you leverage social media and business. I don't know any of these things. And I feel like I'm doing a disservice, Heather, if I don't bring this knowledge and this relevant information to my kids. Yes, I do a great job teaching them the curriculum, but I think that this is an updated version 2.0 of what's happening in business. And once he explained it to me that way, I thought, he's so right. I have to show up to teach them these things because they're learning a lot from a course from a book, but they're not hearing about business today. And so once I saw myself through the rose-colored glasses he wore, I put them on myself Mm. and I was able to show up as a really confident version of me and, and lead those kids and have a great class. I love that. Which brings us to something else that you said was when we put other people on a pedestal, we're putting ourselves beneath them. And that was such an aha for me. Not, it was, it's the way you put things, right? A lot of the way the ways you put things are like things that a lot of us know, in some to some extent. But you just make it a little bit more understandable because when I thought of it that way of, oh, I think about the people that I look up to or getting excited about having you here today, right? Of getting you on this show, you're busy. But when I saw that, I'm like, I'm busy too. (laughs) And putting us in that position, how can we help more people get into that mindset of not looking at it that way. Like we can admire people and we can look up to people, but then we don't want to put ourselves in a a one down position. 
Listen, I, I recommend that you think of someone in your life that appears a certain way on social media, but you know that person personally, that's not who they really are. And use that one instance as an example, right? I know this woman who has a million followers and looks so perfect, but she's nuts in real life. And no one really, <laughs> any people that I know don't really hang around with her. It's just, it's not representative of what's real. And you just think of, if that's the case with that one person, it could be the case with anybody, right? So who am I to sit over here and judge and put myself beneath someone or someone over me? I don't know the whole story and it's not mine to know. But what I can say is I do want to live in a world where we are treated equally, where my child treats people equally. And I'm going to help be a part of making that happen the minute I start showing up and leveling that playing field for everyone. You sent something to me about social media for dummies, and I didn't have a chance to really look at that. But if we missed anything or we've covered some of that already, what else can we be doing from a social media perspective? Yeah, absolutely. The most important thing, if you're not super familiar or even really comfortable with social media, it's really overwhelming. You may not know where to start. A really good place to begin is we talked about your profile. Is your bio updated? Is your work history updated on LinkedIn? Is your profile picture professional looking? Is it blurry? Does it actually fit in the, the little circle? Those things are really important to how you're visible and how you appear to other people. So you wanna make sure your profile looks good and you can find all of the image dimensions and all that stuff by a quick Google. It will literally pop up in the first two results. Even though it's changing all the time, you can usually find the most updated standards yeah. on Google without any problem. You just have to look it up. You just have to try. <laughs> and then in terms of your actual approach to posting and engaging on social media. Don't worry too much about frequency of posting. I know a lot of people tend to fret about, okay, I have to post every single day. I have to post seven times a day. I need to post five times a week and it has to be these kinds of posts. Don't overthink that, especially in the beginning. All that's gonna matter is if you're posting on a consistent schedule. So that could be once a day, just make sure it's the same time every day. And then it could be, once a week, just make sure it's around the same time every week. Okay. And more importantly than that, a couple of minutes before you post, start engaging on stuff on your feed. Start commenting Ooh. on posts that you recently posted that had one or two likes on it, had a couple comments. Even if it didn't do numbers, as they say, <laughs> you can just do a little bit of interacting start liking some posts on your feed so that Instagram or LinkedIn or Facebook is, oh, okay, they're on, they're active, they're gonna do something, then you post. And after you post, yeah. you might have that sense of relief. Oh my gosh, I just posted, great, I'm done. Or it might be that fear of, oh my gosh, I sent it, I'm gonna put my phone down, I have to run away, I'm like so scared. And I don't want you to do either of those things. What you're gonna do is you're gonna stay on for a couple more minutes, wait till you get a like or two, and then comment on the post, share it, tag somebody in a comment. You're gonna interact on your own post a couple mm. times, and then you're gonna go back to engaging on other posts for just a couple minutes. So it's seriously no more than five minutes. Abby, um, that is, I didn't know, that is like yeah. such good stuff right there. So do a little bit of posting and engaging before you create your own post, and then stay on and do a little more posting and engaging before you get off. Yes, just make it a routine. And does that, that change be, the does that change the algorithms? 
for the individual, thinking about the algorithm too much will just give you a headache and okay. it's not worth it because they're going to change it tomorrow. But for the most part, think about what the social media companies want. They want you to be on as much as possible so you're clicking on ads and buying stuff. Mm. That's how they get money. So think about that and then think about how they're going to promote your posts or boost your posts a little bit more if you're active and you're keeping other people online. The longer that you can stay online and the longer that other people can stay online, the more likely they are to buy something on a sponsored ad. That's just yeah. math. So just work with it a little bit, but to your own advantage. What's some advice that you could give leaders on how to still manage people individually, but still be fair and consistent? I know it's a big one. That is, and I lived it so many times. I had a consistent high performer on my team for seven out of the 10 years that I was in my role. So as that tenure increases and that person's success increases, so does their, let's say, their name in the company. I worked for a very large company. Their name in the company, their name in the location. As a leader, we always thought it was important at this company to show people that you can hit these goals. But for some people and personalities, they looked at it as I'm never going to make I, I can't beat that person. I'm just going to quit. And we had multiple people quit because they were like, I'm never going to be that person. Yeah. I, I, I can't. But so after this happened as a new sales leader, I was like, I've got to change something. Keep holding somebody on a pedestal isn't the right thing to do. All right. Praising where praise is due. Absolutely, because high performers usually thrive off of praise. And if they're doing the things, yeah. you have to praise them. There are some things that I would do behind the scenes where I would add extra praise and feedback to that high performer. And I actually would share with them. We had a really good trusting relationship. Hey, I want you to know that I think you're doing fantastic. However, the team is going to hear this. I just don't want you to think it's discounted. I think you're fantastic. But it got to a point, too, where so many people were saying this, that people were immediately feeling from day one inadequate. So I would break down the new people's goals into realistic amounts, very small. And then I would celebrate the heck out of them meeting those small goals because if your buying cycle is long these people you don't want them to take too long to feel a win and I, that industry was a long buying cycle if you don't find ways to celebrate and give these people their own version of a successful pat on the back i think you do yourself a disservice because they might be waiting six months to get a woohoo and if all they hear the whole time is how the other person's just killing it and making the bonus and winning the awards and winning the four days off for free. And I think it can be detrimental. It's a tough balancing act, Gina. It, it, it is. And thank you for answering the question. I think this, right, I wrote it down. So we pull this out as a video blurb. I think that's really powerful. And I think it's something leaders have to pay attention to because you're always going to have that high performer who's killing it. And that's probably a small percentage of the team, mm -hmm. but it's going to bring down the rest of the team. If all you're hearing is about Joe one more time yeah. or Joanna yeah. one more time. And I love I think this is such a great strategy that 
give them their praise but behind the scenes behind the scenes give them a little extra and say you're doing amazing i i also think that i want to lean on those performers and say hey you're killing it john and michelle are not and somehow i want you to be a resource or a mentor or someone that they can lean on what do you think of that Tell me more about what you mean by knowing and doing gap. Well, that's where if you look at it, there are so many great sales books out there. I encourage everyone to read all of them because t- different teachers will speak to you in a different way. However, after you've read the material, studied the material, maybe role played it, I bet in all your years of watching hundreds of practice sets or role plays, you're seeing people that know what to do and they still don't do it. So let's use a really easy one. Everyone's been taught to get a clear next step on the calendar with a qualified prospect, okay? But a prospect might say something like, give me a call in two weeks. Let's talk in two weeks. And the salesperson lacks the assertiveness to say, you know what? I don't have a couple of weeks on my calendar, but I do have next Thursday at two o'clock. So sometimes you could say that's lack of a selling skill. I'll guarantee you it's lack of assertiveness in stating what you need. And what you need is an appointment on the calendar. Right. Check this prospect's commitment to really talking again. That's a very small area, but I know you've had to see this where they're in chase mode because they didn't get that next step on the calendar. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, over the years, that was probably one of my bigger weaknesses was the follow-up and not getting the next appointment on my calendar. And now I'm sort of unapologetic about it. Like my style with it is, hey, I'm in sales and I have to get something on my calendar, right? And they're, and I'm usually selling in the sales space. So salespeople sure. can, right? I can talk to a salesperson that way. But even if they're not a salesperson, if I'm selling to somebody else, my approach is this is what you would get working with us. Like we're, I'm modeling this for you that this is what we do. We get the next step. And so I think for me, it's been about having the confidence to do it, to not feel uncomfortable. Why do you think people don't ask for that next step? Well, it when people aren't able to bring their assertiveness muscle to the conversation, they engage in what I call passive aggressive type of selling. They go along to get along. Mm -hmm. With that, I would contend there's a belief system going on there, which needs some self-awareness. Oh, I don't want to look pushy. I don't want to get look desperate. So they go along to get along for a variety of reasons. And so it's literally not being able to hold that assertiveness muscle. And actually, I would flip this a little bit too, because I know you've been in sales a long time and been very successful. There are times you don't need a next step. And it is okay to disqualify the opportunity and say something like, Gina, we've had a great conversation today. But based on our conversation, I'm not seeing a clear reason for a next step. What am I missing? So assertiveness is also a huge skill in disqualifying opportunities that are never going to go anywhere. They're going to end up in, we refer to uh, as a practice proposal. So that could be a talk track, like what we just demonstrated. Yeah, yeah. But the assertiveness is what allows you to say the right talk track, the right things, the right way. Yeah. a non-personal spray and pray attempt to get business. Yeah. And as a buyer, I resent that because when you did yours, 
putting it in the connection request, you know what got me, right? What got me in your request? Do you even remember what I you listened said? to the podcast and I heard mm-hmm. you say this. Connect it back to me in some way yep. that you've personalized this, that you have a clue of what I do. There are other requests I get where they're literally pitching me what I do. Right. And I'm like, I do that too. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Take care. I love the ones. I was recently in a sequence by a recruiting firm so that I, so they could help me scaling my business and reduce the cost of hiring employees. I'm like, you know, it's just me, right? <laughs> and that's probably all it's ever going to be. Like I've got some fractional help, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I've, uh, but uh, it's like, th- this is me. This is what I do. It's my name on the website, right. on the door, right? And it's like, okay. And finally, I just, I let the guy off the hook. I didn't really let him off the hook. I guess I didn't have to respond whatsoever. Could have just blocked him, but that just didn't seem right. I'm like, dude, can you take me off the list? I'm not who you think I am. Oh, sorry. Thanks. Gone. Here's what's worse. I had one guy today, actually this happened a couple of times over the last couple of days, was in this sequence. Someone was reaching out to me, wanted to know if I needed help, video production help, creating a course. And we were, and he was offering a revenue split. And when I got the first email, I was like, okay, I'll click the Vidyard link. Did. And then after that, all the emails coming to me were addressed to David. I'm like, but I'm, I mean, that's my dad. Like, I, you know, so I responded finally and I was like, two things. One, not interested. Two, you've been calling me David for the last four days. Hope that didn't screw up the rest of your automation sequence. I felt obligated to let the guy know. Can you imagine if his whole database just shifted by a line? Right. And now every Everybody. email he's sending in the middle of the sequence, just switched. Well, he just destroyed his reputation with that entire list. Yeah, gone. And that's the problem I have with automation. Even some of the ones that I get where it's like, don't you think we should get together? And I'll respond, no. And then like four weeks later, I get another message, not the same message, but another pitch. And I'm like, hi, Joe, did you read my last response? no response right and then i'll get another message i'm like oh i and then i'm like oh i get it you don't read these this is automation got it two rules for using robots are you ready one don't let them know it's a robot do everything so well that there's no way they ever know it's a robot which means you got to be all over it or two tell them it's a robot right away so they understand You know, I found it interesting. I heard you talk in another interview about 2020 being the year that you made the least amount of money, but you you accomplished the most amount of things. You did the most amount of things. Yes. Yes. It was what a wild year. You know, we I had a really good thing going. I had a sales team of 65 people. I was at a brokerage that took care of everything. I had complete autonomy. I had complete freedom. Life was good. We had the TV show. I was about to drop my second book. You know, I was thinking about what it was going to be and everything. We were, life was great. 
And apparently that wasn't good enough for me. <laughs> you know, I just like, just think for me, like, okay, so, so, you know, I've now been the number one selling real estate agent in New York City history for multiple years in a row. So now what? Like, what do I do now? Like I climb that mountain, where do I go from here? Do I climb it again and again and again? Okay, great. I gotta do, I gotta take my next step. What's my next step? Right, I gotta grow, um, I've gotta build. So the next step is gonna be to build my own company. That sounds terrifying. How do I do that? I have no idea. Let's figure it out and just wing it. You know, I've never been the kind of person just to be too overly nervous or scared. I, I feel like if I stay busy enough, I won't fail. You know, and if I don't, if I don't overanalyze everything and I just move forward and focus on growth and building every day and generating business every single day, things are just going to work out by default. Like just because I'm going to have blinders on. Like I'm going to win the race just because I'm not looking left or looking right. Yeah. And I look left. I'm going to get way too nervous, way too anxious, way too, oh my God, oh shit, what, what, what do we do? We spent what, what? And also granted at the time, you know, my major source of income was from selling real estate predominantly in New York City. In March of 2020, that came to a screeching halt. I wasn't even allowed to go outside, right? Every deal we had went into immediate litigation. All the deals I did in 2020. Oh God, yeah. Until the fall. I didn't even think about that were with buyers or basically trying to get out of contracts because yeah. everyone said New York is dead, right? New York's dead, it's over, it's never coming back. We're all gonna die, we're all <laughs> And thankfully, I had a few longtime clients who are very wealthy for a reason because they see through the chaos and the noise. And they came to me in the summer and said, hey, I think it's probably a good time to buy real estate in New York City, right? I'm like, oh my God, no one's talked to me about that for six months. I think so. I think there's great deals out there. I think it's bloody. You can get things for like 50% off. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Let's go out and just find some opportunistic purchases. And so we did some big deals at the end of 2020 that really like saved me that were really important for us. Well, it's like the stock market, right? Like the market goes down that's a great time to buy where people are bailing out people start freaking out that their their investments are going down i just don't look at them just ride it out and what else can i buy yeah listen when things are, yeah it's but the problem is when things are bad they've never been worse and when things are good yeah man they've never been bad yeah really good point and that's the way everyone feels. There's a line from Tommy Lee Jones in Men in Black when he's trying to describe to, you know, Will Smith, why haven't we told the world about aliens, right? And he says, a person is smart. People are stupid. Oh, man, oh man, is that good. There's so much to unpack here. I'm thinking about these bad habits that show up at every experience level in every age group. I know I work with a lot of clients who, you know, they're either frustrated with their young sales team that don't have the skills and act like they know it all, or they're frustrated with their veteran sales team that knows it all. And basically old dogs, new tricks, they don't want to learn. They don't want to change because it's, yeah. it's harder to change those habits or they've confused themselves into believing that I've always done this and it works. Yep. And then I'm like, but well, how is it working for you? Right. Right. Are you meeting? And I'm like, you must be exceeding your numbers then. And then there's silence. Exactly. Right. So when we look at 
starting to change those bad habits, like, you know, number one, acknowledge it. Right. Let's unpack that one. What about the person that can't acknowledge it or won't acknowledge it? They just can't see it. They don't have the, the emotional intelligence to do so. Or the other side of that is their ego is too big to acknowledge that yeah. I'm attached to this and I have to look good or I need to sound good or I can't make any changes because what if I fail? So they're listening to the voice of their ego versus the voice of their, I would say, authentic self. Yeah. Really going inward and saying, all right, I've played this game long enough. It's not working for me. I need to get real with myself. But you have to be ready to go there. Not yeah. everybody's ready. Just because someone's in pain, I always say, doesn't mean they're ready to get out of pain. Sometimes people will stay in pain for 30 years until the day it doesn't work anymore. So yeah, I don't want to work with people where I have to convince them that your ego is at play and you don't want to learn the, to break these bad habits. Yeah, I want to work with the willing. That's, I, that's <laughs> the only people I want to work with who come to me and say, you know what? I know I have some things in the way. I just don't know where they are. And when I find them, what to do instead yeah. or how to replace one of my bad habits with a habit that starts to serve me. So I only work with the willing. So let's talk about the willing. The people <laughs> who are saying, you know what, maybe my ego is too big. Maybe I really need to get some help. Maybe I really ne do need to ask someone I trust. What are you seeing in me? What are some of my blind spots that I'm not able to see on my own? And start there. So acknowledging it, of course, looking at is it the ego or is it really your true self that's trying to come out? And then jumping headfirst into that. You know, I'm with you when it comes, especially when it comes to well, both coaching and training or consulting. I want to work with the willing. I have no bandwidth. I tell the story about a discovery call I had with a woman who, you know, everything possible could be going wrong in her life. And then it was, you know, I just want a, a magic bullet. And I'm like, there's no magic bullet. I'm yeah. like, he, the magic bullet is hard work. That's it. Yeah. She's like, oh, I was really hoping you're going to tell me something different. No, I'm not. <laughs> and I really, I did not want to work with her because that was mm -hmm. going to be exhausting for me. But then there's a sense of guilt with it too of like, yes, I, I agree. You have to acknowledge you have a habit problem, let's say, a bad right. sales habit problem. Well, what about the people that... Do you ever feel, maybe this is just my codependency, I feel like part of my job as a salesperson is to find a way to show them the way that they don't see mm -hmm. so that they can get to that awakening of, oh, maybe I do have a problem. Do you have any thoughts on that? And I ask this question to you because of sales leaders who might be frustrated with how to get through to people who don't see it, but they, but the leader sees it. Excellent question. And yes, I have experience with this on both sides where I will challenge someone and say, Let's just take everything off the table or let's pretend you and I are friends and we're having a conversation and I'm about to ask you a question that you can be honest with. It's like just right from your gut and your heart and your head, be honest with me. Do you really in your heart, do you see yourself changing this? Do you really want this bad enough that you're willing to do the work it takes? And just the first thing that comes to your head, tell me. And I have had people say, I don't really want to. I don't want to do the deep work. I want to, they, or they just want to snorkel, not scuba dive. They're ready to just stay on the surface. I just want to fix a couple of things here and there. They're not ready to scuba dive. Yeah. Then on the other, other side, I've said that to people and they say, you know what? I can't not do this. I have to. 
I want to go scuba diving. I want to get to the root of what this problem is and get around that. And I think you're the person to help me with that. So it's asking the question, do you really want it? If you don't, let's just say goodbye to each other. We'll still be friends on Facebook and LinkedIn, but I'm not your gal. I can't because it's too much work to try to push against something that is pushing back at me. I want this beautiful dance of someone who may push back a little, but is open. Someone who may be a little closed off, but then we start to have a conversation and I could start seeing them start yeah. to pull away the layers. Again, working with the willing. So I yeah. I never feel guilty giving people the ability to tell me the truth. Just let's be honest with each other because I'm going to find out in the first two sessions if you're really telling me the truth. If you tell me you want it and then you push back on everything, then I know that you are lying. Yeah. So let's just be real now before any money is exchanged. And let's go forward from there. And most people are not used to being spoken to that way. And of course, I don't True. speak that from my head. I always make sure I speak that type of conversation from my heart, that it really is coming from a true place for me. And I know they feel it. And that's where I can get the honesty from someone. Yeah. I see so much struggle with the framework, with the tools. All of those things are definitely necessary now. I started on the opposite in the spontaneous improvised way of selling, really messy. And I'm like, this is sufficient, but that's not sufficient as a standalone. And then when I started to understand process and framework and tools, I was like, oh, the merging of the two was magical because I knew how to get off the script when I needed to get off the script. This is where I see the problem happens. Yeah. Is that they learn the script and then they hold on to the script and they don't want to let the script go like it's a security blanket. Yeah. And that's where the trouble happens because they don't know how to flex. Can I share with you how we refer to this internally here with our team? This is such a great point. We call this we call this opera versus Playboy. Playboy magazine. I know we're getting racy now. Yes. So an opera is highly structured, highly choreographed. There's dozens of musicians. There's dozens of singers and actors. Think about the opening scene of an opera. It is lockstep. It is dialed in. It is highly coordinated. And that is your preparation. That is your structural questions that you Mm -hmm. always go in with and your structural sales process. Now, let's switch over to Playboy, specifically Playboy interviews. Turns out, Mm. my friends, the interviews were actually great. No one knew this, but it's true. It was not about the pictures. It was about the interviews. I actually watched a documentary on this. It's fascinating, right? It it is actually very fascinating. These these interviewers, and there was about 16 of them. There's about 16 journalists and interviewers that collectively were responsible for hundreds and hundreds of these Playboy interviews. So they would do maybe 10 a year. They would do a lot. So they come in with about 200 prepared questions. They sit down with the famous movie star, politician, musician, whoever it is, and they start going into their initial question based on the answer that they hear. They could literally stop at question number three and say, wow, tell me more about that. What happened that night with Elvis? Did he really put that peanut butter and banana sandwich where everyone said he did? 
Did he really go nude swimming with Marilyn Monroe? Holy smokes, I didn't know that. That wasn't in my research. They will listen for the doors opening when there's new information, critical information, or especially interesting information. They will pursue that line of questioning until it reaches its natural conclusion or until they get the payoff, the juicy story about Elvis and the peanut butter and the bananas. And then, and only then, will they go back to their prepared questions. So even though they prepared 200 questions, they might end up asking seven or eight. And what's the substance of all the rest of the interview? What's the substance of all the rest of the conversation? Whatever emerges from that celebrity that's especially interesting, valuable, unique, or newsworthy. Imagine if we ran our sales calls and especially our discovery calls saying, okay, opera is the preparation. We always start with the same question, with the structural questions, Mm -hmm. and then the playboy is the situational questions. So what's going to come up based on what they asked? What's going to come up based on data they shared? What avenues are now opening up that will help you make the case for how you can help this prospect, how you can help this company, how you can help this situation that you would have never guessed in a million years, but they just revealed it to you and you now follow that trail to its natural conclusion. And you have the discipline then to take this back to the next structural question to move your sales process forward so you never lose control of the call. I think I'm in love with you. When you really think about it, and it's difficult for people to do this, but whenever you look at things in a very simple manner or do things in a simple manner, you tend to have greater outcomes or better outcomes when it's really simple in nature. And it's with everything. When your relationships with your family are simple, they're not complicated, they're not full of drama and all of this stuff, you feel better. When you overcomplicate in business processes, the brain hates it. The brain, and studies show this. This is why I said, let's talk about this because studies show when you overcomplicate things, the human brain just, it runs for the hills. Mm-hmm. It can't stand the complexity. But when you make it simple, people lean in and they have a better experience. So when you think about like what we do here at Sales Gravy, right? We train people to sell. Let's not overcomplicate this, everyone. Let's not think like there's some magical way of doing this and it, it's going to take all these algorithms and all, you know, all AI and all this stuff. Let's not overcomplicate it. It's at the end of the day, it's really simple. You're connecting with people. So just connect with those people. Well, pick up the phone. Here's how you do it in a very simple way. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't try yeah. to, to be witty or logical or this. Just make it simple. And when you make it simple, you win more. Think about all the great sports teams that are out there. And the ones that are winning championships, like the baseball playoffs are happening as we're recording this time. And, and I know because your husband is a big fan of the Any, Phillies. Um, and I'm here in Philadelphia, right? Yeah. So, but when you really look at how these teams made, it wasn't, it was they did very simple things really well. They did the basics really well. They were simple in their approach. Throwing, running, football teams, blocking, tackling, no penalties. It wasn't like this trick, trickster play that they were doing to win the games. All the little things. So they got simple with it. 
I think that's what we need as a society is we need to really get back to let's just be simple in our approaches with people. Let's just, let's not try to think about a situation and overanalyze it and try to overcomplicate it and, and use big, super duper big words and people and all that. Just be simple in our approach because people like that. I like it. Why, why do you think, why do you think some people overcomplicate it? What's your thoughts on that? Because they want to feel important. Yes. And they think that, I mean, think about it. Why do people use big words? Because they want to feel important. They want to, they want people to think that they feel important. But every single time they use big words, the opposite effect happens. The person on the other end goes, I know what you're doing. You're trying to sound more important than what you are. But when, when you use a simple word and you use simplicity in your approach, the person on the other end takes it better. They walk away going, wow, that was a really great conversation. That was a really great interaction I had. That was a lot of fun because it was simple in our approach. Yeah. We talk a lot about flexing our styles at Sales Gravy, right? Flexing the styles to the people that we're talking to. So what are your thoughts on that when it comes to, right? I may use big words with people that I feel like want to hear big words, even though it might not be my style, but I know it's their style. What do you think about that? It's interesting. So there is a time and a place for this. It's why those words exist, right? It's you need to use them here and there. If it's just to your point, if the person on the other end is somebody that uses those and they thrive on that and they desire that, if you're in sales, your mission is to get the sale. So what do you do? You simply become a chameleon. You become adaptable. Yeah. You just kind of flex over it. Adam Grant writes about this. He did studies about this. And he did studies about the power of adaptability. And he actually looked at personalities of salespeople. This is really interesting. And I'm, I'm said, writing the book down. Yeah, the yeah. The introverts, they and he actually equated it to how much they made per hour. Gene, this is really cool. So the introverts in sales made about $120 an hour. This is across multiple industries and across all of that, disciplines and what, what, and what have you. And then the extroverts in sales, those people dressing for success, running out there, boiler room sort of mentality, things like that. They made $100 an hour. Mm. It's not even a Starbucks latte difference when you look at that, right? And then Adam uncovered in this study a third category that is flexible and adaptable, category called an ambivert. Yes, and that person is chameleon-like. That person, to what you just said, they go into situations and when they meet people, they automatically flex their personality to that person's personality. They're mm -hmm. chameleon-like. So in your case here, if the person is using big words and everything, they may not be using big words, but they get, again, it's very simple. Think about this. All they do is they don't try to force their personality on that person. That's a very complicated process and you never win that process. What they do is they simply say, oh, you're that way. I'm going to be that way. Mm -hmm. And then they flex. Yeah. That person made over $208 an hour, significantly more, right? And all it was, and think about it, it's just simple. It's that I, I recognize you, I flex to you. In a sales situation, yeah. I'm not yeah. saying you disregard who you are as a human, your core tendencies, but if you're in sales, your mission in sales is go get the sale, right? A way of doing that is being really simple in your approach and just flexing to people. If you just flex to everybody you beat, you'll win way more often than you'll lose. 
there's that sort of conventional wisdom that you got to love what you sell. Not necessarily you got to love what you're selling. I think you got to believe in what you're selling, the value of what you're selling. And it's, it's incredibly important that when you're talking to someone about why this bag costs $3,000 and the reasons and the value, that, how it's hand-stitched, how it's handmade by people that have been artisans for generations and the design and the coloring and the type of dye they use on it. When you're talking about all those things, you need to believe in it yourself. I think that that's all you got to love it. I think it's a slightly different statement. You have to believe in what you're saying. So I, I my advice is find the product that you believe in. Find the the brand and the, the product and what that will represent you as well, because then that work's going to be a lot easier. Can you do it if you don't? You probably can. You're not going to be very convincing. You're not going to be very excited. And that's going to reflect on that welcome on that credibility because you're establishing as the other piece as a salesperson you're establishing credibility you're establishing what you're talking about the other thing i would say it's a big piece of advice for me and i know this is that sometimes the lnd folks go get their eyes this big when i say this but it's not about product knowledge don't lose yourself trying to learn every detail every technical thing most customers do not care i have work again with from jewelry to, to to sales for homes and cars and things like that. And people tend to think that the technical knowledge is what matters. Oh, they're going to want to know the clarity of the diamond. 90% of the time, there I say 99% of the time, I just care how it looks in my hand. Or I just care how it looks in my ears. If I feel awesome in it, same thing as a car. Yes, you can tell me about the miles per gallon. You can tell me about the warranties. You can tell me about these wonderful things. But once I sit on that, if I feel cool, that's what matters. So understanding that you have to have enough product knowledge, but not inundate and not and also not get paralyzed by it, because this is another thing I hear quite a bit. Is, oh, I don't know enough about that to sell it. I would challenge anyone that says, again, if you like it, if you're into people, if you're into the type of product you're selling, I would challenge you that your first day at the job, you could do a fantastic work with the, the first customer that walks in. I love that because it's it comes down to making them feel good. Understanding enough where you're not getting paralyzed by, I don't have, and I run into this a lot with salespeople that I train and coach that they're like, oh, I'm just really struggling with product knowledge and that's slowing me down. And I'm like, I, I work in so many industry verticals. I'm like, I don't know half of, right? Like I openly say that I don't know all the details of every industry. It doesn't take away from the fact that I know how to sell and what people are buying from me is understanding how to sell. And so at the end of the day, I'm going to make them feel good and competent in helping them get there. But I don't have to know every single piece of their industry in order to have the same impact on them. And one of the things you said now, it made me think about something else I speak about a lot, which is the crucial for that experience, crucial for establishing value. Your value as the salesperson is being in the driver's seat, listening first, which is really important, which is why I always emphasize a lot the, the what questions are you asking? Are they moving you further into that conversation? Or are you just asking questions that are not really doing much are you asking somebody where they're from? What are you going to do with that information? Is it important to that conversation? Is it important? 
oh, I'm just making conversation. Well, let's make conversation for you to have enough information to give them some value, to add your value to this. How can you be on the driver's seat? How can it be the majority of experiences out there? If it's a decent experience, I won't call it good, but if it's a decent customer experience when you go somewhere, it looks like something like this, that you walk in, they say hello, they welcome you, they ask you my least favorite question, which is, can I help you with anything? <laughs> They'll get me started. That We have a whole episode about, can I help you with anything? But they ask you, can I help you with anything? Maybe you say yes, maybe you say no. And then if you say yes, they say, well, I was looking for this, this jacket and black and this size and this and that. And then they go and they search for it and they get it for you. Try it on. You purchase it and you walk out. What's wrong with this picture? It It's okay. It's fine. But this is not an experience. And you were, they were in the driver's seat. In my mind, this looks like something that's a little bit, and again, and small tweaks to this, right? Where I'm coming in, I'm watching which direction you go and I ask you a better question and there are many better questions and can I help you with anything? I will make a, maybe I'll pay you a compliment. Maybe I'll make a comment on the, in the area that you're looking at. Cause you're, there are two things that before I say hello to you, uh, I can see where you wear and I can see where you at and what you're looking at. So that gives me enough information for me to, to have a better sentence than can I help you on anything? And then after that, when I ask you for that jacket and black and that size, maybe I bring you two or three jackets. Maybe I bring you the sunglasses that go with the jacket. And maybe I tell you that looking at what I'm wearing and seeing that I'm very elegant in this type of cut, you just took the liberty of going with a different brand that has a completely different cut for me to just try it out and see how that looks like. And that takes you an additional, what, two minutes? We're talking here, maybe three, maybe five. You have to look for a couple of items. So that's, and it's not, it doesn't cost any more than, than it did before. And then, and then to top it all off, you have a, you know, decrease in traffic year after year, specifically in brick and mortar stores. So they're the last people in front of you. Take the opportunity of that moment. Take the opportunity to have that time with someone.